You are listening to the Sermons Podcast of First Baptist Church, Mount Washington. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 3. We're in the process of, of studying verses 21 through 26 together and uh, the doctrine of justification is such an important doctrine because uh, it answers for us how a person is saved. How is a person saved? And that's hard sometimes to convince people and even ourselves that there's coming a day when that question will be the most important question uh, of our very existence. Uh, It already is. There's just a lot of other things that crowd in on our lives and uh, kind of cloud the picture. But when we find ourselves standing before God, it will be the most important question. And uh, the answer is, uh, is so critical that we, that we understand. So it's really good that we slow down a bit in this passage uh, in Romans 3, 21 through 26, that we take our time. It's sort of like a diamond with multi-facets, and uh, we're just spending some time turning it and gazing into each of uh, many of those facets. And uh, today we're continuing our gaze, uh, but with an eye toward the grace of God. Paul writes in Romans 3.21, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in His divine forbearance, He's passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time, so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, please help us now. by the power of your spirit to have eyes to see and ears to hear, a heart that is uh, soft and ready to receive what you would have to say to us, Lord, because for what you have to say to us is much more important than what we have to say to you today. So, Lord, shape us and change us by your word. I pray that you would use me as your servant. I pray that you would increase and I would decrease, and your word would go forth. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Martin Luther called this paragraph the chief point and the very central uh, place of the, of the epistle, of the letter of Romans, if not the whole Bible, he said. There, there are certainly some very central passages of Scripture that we would hold up and, and say these are important, but, but rarely do we find a passage that has so many important uh, theological truths uh, for us, such as the righteousness of God, faith, redemption, uh, propitiation, and, and, and at the center of it all, the doctrine of justification. This is contained in the language of the righteousness of God. You see it repeated and heard it repeated in verse 21 and verse 22, verse 25 and 26. But it's also in the word justify in verse 24. 
And it's also in verse 26. It, it comes to, from the same root word, righteous, righteous, justify. I learned it as a kid uh, that when God justified me, he declares me righteous just as if I'd never sinned. But, but you understand the opposite is true as well. That he also, when he declares me right, he has made it so that it's just as if I'd always obeyed. Uh, that upon my faith in Jesus, God takes all of the guilt of my life and puts it upon him on the cross, forgiving me of my sin. And then at the same time, God takes the perfect righteousness of Jesus and he credits it to my account and, and a, a miracle of, of miracles as if I've always obeyed him. That's astonishing, church. Verse 24 literally reads, being justified. It's a passive verb, and it means that someone else is doing the action, not me. This is something that has been done to me and for me. I cannot justify myself. Paul makes that crystal clear in verse 20, among other places in the Bible, but God is the one who justifies a person. Verse 26 underscores this. God is the justifier. Or if you put it in the, the righteous terminology, as Christopher Ashe does, God is the righteouser. He is the one who, who declares us righteous. He is the one. This is an immediate and ir irrevocable act of God. God does this. At the moment that a sinner believes in Christ, we talked about our sanctification, how our sanctification takes place over the course of our lives after we are, are saved. We talked about our glorification that will happen in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye when Christ comes back. Our justification also takes place in a moment when we believe in Christ. Stephen Lawson communicates it like this. It is possible to walk into a Bible study or a worship service lost and under the wrath of God and condemned. And then in the middle of that Bible study, uh, suddenly you put your faith in Jesus Christ. Before you even get up out of your seat, you are immediately justified by God. It is an irrevocable act by God. This divine proclamation by the high court of heaven can never be reversed. What God has declared stands forever, permanently entered into the records of the supreme court of heaven. There's no higher court that could overrule the declaration of God in heaven on this matter. That's an amazing truth. And in one moment, we are lost. We are we are setting under the condemnation of God. And then to the next moment, gloriously, we are a part of the family of God. One moment, you're under the curse of the law. And the next, you're under the blessing of Jesus Christ. We see this played out and illustrated in the lives of people and throughout the Scripture. But one I was thinking about this week was the thief hanging on the cross next to Jesus. What a picture. Here's a man that has been uh, condemned for his sin in the earthly courts, and he is moments away from his death before standing before God and facing condemnation there for his sin. But of all the times that he could have been crucified in the history of the world, he happens to be crucified on the day that Jesus 
is being crucified. And hanging there next to him, he said in Luke 23, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. From condemnation to salvation. In, in just a moment, in, in, upon his confession of faith, how glorious is that church that the power of salvation is for all who believe. We see it in other places too. We think about Zacchaeus who met Christ and turned from his sin. In Luke 19, he says, Behold, Lord, half, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house since he is also a son of Abraham. Think of that. In one moment, Zacchaeus was the son of disobedience. He was facing condemnation and wrath. And the next moment, he is the child. He's a child of the promise. He's the son of Abraham. God did that in his life. Or think about the lost son who after squandering his inheritance, his life in sin, he, he says to the Father in Luke 15, you, you know these, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the Father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. Why? For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. He went from death to uh, close to dying at least by desiring even to eat of the food that the pigs were eating. He was starving to death. He went from death to life when he repented. His father justified him, declared him right. Friend, has this happened to you? Has this happened in your life? If not, if not, before you stand to your feet and sing the final song, which we will do in a moment, will you not turn from your sins and trust in Christ and let Him justify you today? Declare you righteous. Ask God to save you. Do not wait till the end. Ask Him to save you now. Ask Him to take your sin away and give you the righteousness of Christ. Our salvation is a miraculous and glorious act. And Paul reminds us of something else, something very significant in this passage, that it is all, that is our salvation, is all by the grace of God. Notice what he says in verse 24. We are justified by His grace as a gift. What happened to the thief? and the tax collector, and the prodigal son, and, and scores of others. What, hap what has happened to many of us is not because of anything that we have done. We have not been deserving in any way. We have not merited this in any way at all. And yet God has done this by His grace in our lives. Lloyd-Jones has written this, there's no more wonderful word than grace. It means the unmerited favor or kindness shown to one who is utterly undeserving. It is not merely a free gift, but a free gift to those who deserve the exact opposite. 
And it is given to us while we are without hope and without God in the world. It is the unmerited favor of God. That is, we can't merit it. We can't earn it. We don't deserve it. In fact, we deserve the opposite. Yet in grace, God shows us kindness. Kindness and mercy, even though we we don't deserve it. Our justification, this act of God declaring us righteous, saving us, is by His grace alone. It's certainly one of the great words that people of the cross should cling to. Uh, When you stop and think about it, it is because of, of grace, and we'll see this in coming weeks, it's because of grace that Christ has come. It is because of grace that He redeemed us. It is because of grace that He went to the cross and died in our place as a propitiation for our sins. It is because of His grace that this gospel message has come to us at some point in our lives that we've heard it. It is because of grace that that, uh, faith has been born in our hearts and that we have received Christ and this gift of righteousness. It is because of grace. Paul wrote in Ephesians 2, for by grace... You have been saved through faith, and and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Church, it is vitally important that we remind ourselves, and, and I think even immerse ourselves often in this truth, that it is of of the grace of God to remember that justification is by grace alone. And Paul draws our attention to this in our text today. Uh, again, it's such few words, but it's such an enormous truth. We should, we should consider it. Uh, first of all, uh, we, he reminds us of our need for God's grace. Our need. Writing at the end of verse 22, he says, For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's, it's noteworthy that when Paul says this or writes this here, uh, that, that it seems at, at first to be out of place. We, we know that this is true, but, but it's, it seems like... Uh, uh, we know that it's true because Paul has spent the first three chapters telling us this, right? From chapter 1, verse 18, all the way to chapter 3, verse 20, he has been telling us, driving this point home, that, that we're all sinners. And it would seem that these words here would fit better, verse 23, if they were moved back up to verse 20, at the end of verse 20. That would have been a great kind of summary statement. But, but they're not. They're here. Paul, Paul's talking about our justification, our salvation. Why would he bring up that we're all sinners one more time for us to hear? It must be, church, because we need to hear it one more time. And also, because before he reminds us that this is all of grace, he wants us to get back in our heads again, lest we forgot from a few verses ago, uh, the, the, the clear picture in bold colors, the reality that is true of every single person, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's no distinction, he says. What does he mean? No distinction between the Jews who were thought to be the religious folks, the moral folks of the day. There's no distinction between them and the Gentiles considered to be the the immoral ones, the folks that were outside of of, of the Old Testament covenant. But, But Paul says there's no distinction. All have sinned, he says. 
This is the result of the fall of Adam, and uh, we'll look at this again in chapter 5. But, but when he talks about sin there, he's, he's, there's lots of different ways that he is describing it. He's talking about that all of us have missed the mark that God has established for us. We've missed the mark by failing to keep His law. We, we've, it means that we are unrighteous. We are not righteous, but unrighteous. We've failed to live rightly before God. We have failed to live lives that are straight, that are true, that are upright, that are righteous. All of those definitions. We've trespassed against God. Meaning that we have chosen to follow our own will rather than God's will through His Word. We have transgressed His law, and we are all guilty before Him. It's interesting, Paul uses a, a, the, the words matter here, the, the, text, the tense of the verb that he uses of all, we've all sinned is a once-for-all kind of a thing. It's a completed action. But notice he goes on to say that we fall short of the glory of God. Present tense. We fall short. Something that we're doing now. It's actually the same word there Jesus used in the story of the prodigal son when he talks about him being in want. He finds himself in the pig pen being in want. He no longer had money. He didn't have food. And he began to be in want. And Paul literally saying here, we are in want of the glory of God. We're in want of it. We fall short of it. We lack it. It's not just that we've broken God's law that is serious, but that we are also falling short of the glory of God. It is something that has marred our entire lives. They've been marred and defaced. The, the image of God by which we were created and we were made for His glory, it has been broken because of our sin. So that now we stand in need of the saving righteousness of God in our lives. And here's the issue that plagues us. And where I, I hope that you will pause and think, as Boyce puts this so well, the reason we don't appreciate grace is that we do not really believe Romans 3.23. We can't imagine that we have fallen and sinned against God to, to this degree. It's, it's been a while since I've seen it now, and I, I can't remember where I've seen it. I've heard it multiple times and seen it. Maybe it was on social media or something, but, but I've heard preachers or a meme that is shared. And it's usually the picture of a, a, a yardstick that is, that is upright. And, and at the top of the yardstick is something like, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. All right, so the top is perfection, and, uh, and, and, and at the bottom would be, you know, really bad. And then you've got people on the, on the chart, so to speak, going up. And you've got Hitler down here, or some other really horrible person down at the bottom. They're like a five or a ten, you know. They're like, you know, way down there. And then you've got at the top, you've got somebody like Billy Graham or something. You know, he's not right up at the top, but he's really, really close, and there's just a small gap. And then we're invited as people to put ourselves, and we always put ourselves somewhere in the middle, you know. And then, and then the thing goes something like this. The speaker or the meme would say something like, you know what, all fall short, and Jesus came to make up the difference. I'm glad you didn't Amen. I understand what's being, what's being said there, but the problem with that is that it implies that, that some people really only need like 25% grace, 
And others need like 75% grace, you know, to be, be saved. And, and, and very subtly, what we do when we think that way is that we add little by little some of our own merit into the picture, don't we? All of a sudden, it came. It just popped in there. I've got a little bit of merit. I, I'm, I'm only needing 15% of, of God's grace to save me. Can I tell you that our salvation is not a little bit of your merit and your good works mixed in with the grace of God? It is all of God's grace. You remember the parable Jesus told in Luke 18? He told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. He said two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers. <laughs> you get the sense, like, even like this tax collector over here. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But, but the, the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, Jesus said, this man went down to his house. What's the word? justified, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. It was Thomas Wilcox who said, the gospel is for sinners and only sinners. And so if you see yourself as mixed into this, a good person, a moral, a conscientious, a church-going person, you might even wonder, begin to think to yourself, how can I possibly be in this category that, that Paul is describing here? And yet you are. It is not amazing grace how sweet the sound that saved a good old boy like me. You're a wretch. I'm a wretch, the Bible says. All have sinned. All fall short of the glory of God. Christians, we must remind ourselves of this. Because we also have a tendency, I think, in, uh, to, to begin to think these other thoughts. How quickly the tune of our hearts can, can change. We may be belting out the words amazing grace while secretly congratulating ourselves that we're not like the other people who are sinners. Sinclair Ferguson speculates on why this happens. It's a, a brilliant picture. He said, the reason grace ceases to be amazing is because having become amazing to us the day we became Christian believers, we find ourselves in so many different ways seeking to find our status before God partly in grace and partly in ourselves. As the old writer used to say, we smuggle our own works and our own achievements and, yes, even our own levels of sanctification or our fruitfulness in the kingdom of God. And in subtle ways, here's the picture, we mix. We produce our own fatal elixir by mixing who we are and what we have done and how far we have gone and how we have been fruitful and what other people think about us. And we mix it all together. And as we drink that elixir, he says, the amazing and the amazement begin to disappear from grace. 
Our Christian lives become ordinary, he writes, rather than extraordinary. Our joy becomes tepid. Our enthusiasm for worship becomes meager. Our zeal in witness becomes frigid. Our love for the brothers becomes commonplace because what we have begun to do is to adulterate and to water down and to minimize and effectively temporize the marvelous grace of our loving Lord. That's so true. And the danger is so real, real because perhaps we came to Christ like the younger brother, the prodigal son, and we came empty-handed and we came solely depending on God. But over time, how the attitude can change and we become more like the older brother. All of these years, I've been serving you, slaving for you, and there doesn't seem to be any rejoicing and, and joy and, and, and that singing of my soul is, is kind of drifting away. And the reason is, is because because we don't appreciate grace. We slip back into thinking thoughts like, we're pretty good. Have you forgotten your need for grace? Have you forgotten what a miracle it is that salvation has come to you of all people? Have you forgotten it? That you don't deserve any of this? This is why I think Paul reverts back to our, our situation, our condemnation in verse 23 to remind us that all of justification and salvation is the gift of God's grace. It's the gift. Verse 24, we are justified by His grace as a gift. It's an interesting word. Paul is so concerned that we understand this that he states it twice in the same sentence. Uh, again, Ferguson calls this the most blessed redundancy, if you will. And it is true. By his grace, and this is a gift. Meaning the, the, the same things. Paul, Paul is anxious to emphasize that our salvation is a gift from God. Something that comes to us freely. Some of your translations may say freely in a manner declaring that we have done nothing whatsoever to deserve this. It's just come. Uh, another interesting word study, John 15, 25. Jesus, speaking of those who are persecuting him, he says that they hated me without a cause. This is kind of the translation. They hated me without, without a cause. And that word, without a cause, is the same word here that is used as, as a gift or freely. That is, we are justified by His grace without a cause. That may bother you, but it's true. There's nothing in you that caused this. Amen? Right? Without a cause, this came. It stresses the fact there's nothing in us to deserve this gift. There's no cause for it as we are concerned. It's just something we have received by God. It is the unmerited favor or kindness of God that this has come. Another word study to highlight this, Paul will write later, and many of you know this, you know the Roman road, Romans 6, 23. Uh, he says, for the wages of sin is... Is death, right? The wages of sin. There's a difference between wages and a gift. 
Wages are something that you work hard for, right? You earn it. You, you, you earn your wage. You earn your salary. You, des- you deserve, uh, deserve it because you've labored for it. It, it came at your efforts. It, it came uh, be- because you earned it. But a gift is just the opposite, isn't it? You don't do anything to earn a gift. You don't work for it. It's just freely given. You didn't do anything to deserve it or it wouldn't be a gift. When, when a gift is given to you, It's given solely on the love and the mercy and the kindness of the one who gave it. This is what Paul is stressing here. It's quite amazing. God gives us His righteousness, that's what we're talking about, freely to those who have done nothing to work for it or who don't deserve it. Out of the the gracious disposition of God out of His loving kindness, out of His mercy, He did this for you. That's, again, hard to accept. We just had uh, Christmas a month and a half ago, and I was thinking about it this week. You know that feeling that you get sometimes when someone gets you a gift and you didn't get them anything? And you're thinking to yourself, maybe I can run back to the bedroom and like grab something and wrap it up, you know, and give it to them before they leave, you know, because I just feel like I, they gave me something I need to, or some, somebody steps up and they, they do something that you weren't expected, you know, they bought your dinner or they whatever, and you say, can I pay you, can I pay you back for this, can I, I there's this sense in which we don't accept that, we, we have a hard time, let me do something, you know, to, to earn it back for you, let me, let me, let me return this at something, but Paul says when it comes to our salvation, you can't. You were justified by God's grace as a gift from God. As someone will say, inevitably comes up the argument, uh, if, if salvation is a free gift and there's nothing we can do to qualify for it or pay it back, then, then won't we just live any way that we please? Won't we take advantage of this? It's just for, won't we just think that it's just free grace after all and we'll just take it? Paul will answer that in chapter 6. Uh, but can I tell you that if you think that way about it, if that's your thought about this, then you have, you have not understood the gospel. You've not experienced grace. Why would I say that? Because in receiving this free gift of salvation, there's something very important that we also understand. That it wasn't free to God. It was free to you. And to me, but not to him. It came at the cost of his son, Jesus. Yes, we are justified freely by his grace, but only in Christ, who gave his life for us. Yes, we come to him with empty hands, being able to say with the, the prodigal, Father, I've, I've sinned against heaven and, I'm, and in your sight, I'm not even worthy to be called your son. But the, the Father, remember, welcomes him as a son. And then you realize in that moment that he's only welcoming you and, and they, to welcome you as a son because he gave his own son. It cost. And as that cost begins to to sink into your life and your understanding of what this gift is and what Christ 
has done. It's, the terminology is difficult. Ferguson talks about it being the lavishness of his grace, the lavishness, the ocean of his grace. As this begins, this truth begins to pour over uh, your, your life, and again, the thoughts will come in. I've got to do something, like the prodigal. Just make me a hired hand, he said. Make me a hired hand in your, in your home. But, but Jesus had already done it all. He paid for it all. And as that amazing grace begins to flow over your life, and, and that truth, it, it begins to transform you. I tell you, your thought is not, wow, I've got grace. I'm going to go out and, and live like Hades, you know, if I can. No. When, when that grace comes over you, it begins to transform you. It begins to change you. The, the amazing grace that saves you is the amazing grace that begins to sanctify your life where you start to hate your sins because that is what it costs. And you start to love your father and you love the things of your, that your father loves and you love his word and you love his truth. And it grieves your heart to think about that you might sin against him. I tell you, this is the, the, the reality of amazing grace that has set in on a person. And it's so powerful that uh, I, this is not in Scripture, I, well, kind of in Scripture, but it's definitely in that song that, that one day His amazing grace is going to glorify us. It's going to take us all the way home to eternity. And at some point, we're after have been singing for 10,000 years, we're still going to be singing about this, this amazing truth. How can this be? How can this be that he saved a wretch like me? All because of his grace to you. His grace. Is that your story? This is later sermon. I should stop. I know I should. But it really, it, I hope you understand how ridiculous it's going to sound when you say, well, you know, your grace kind of made up uh, 25% of my life, but I'm, I'm really pretty good. It's all by grace. Is that your story? Is that your confession? Before you stand up, Cry out to him to save you. Lord, we are humbled by this. How can this be that your grace has come to us like this? Oh Lord, we pray that you would in your wisdom and kindness pour over us that it might transform and change us, this grace that saves, this grace that sanctifies. Do your work in our hearts and lives from it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast. I'm Pastor Jason Clark. And if you don't have a church home, I want to personally invite you to First Baptist Mount Washington. We're striving to be word-centered, gospel-focused, and community-minded. 
Learn more about our church and our meeting times from our website, fbcmw.org.